I'm going to start with that community service announcement on how to take notes really briefly. You have a piece of paper and a pen in front of you. Anything that you hear, see, or think that is remotely interesting, you should write it down. Even if it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. If you are interested in anything, write it down. Draw, doodle, do whatever. Eventually, you'll write down the right stuff. And then number two is you tee it up later. T-E-A. Translate, elaborate, activate. Go back to it, reread it, put it into better, clearer words, and I guarantee you it's inside your head now. You've learned it. Uh, and if you can do that with this today and all year as we move through a number of things exposing the strongholds of the broken mind, I promise you by this time next year, you're going to be a lot more confident in your faith. I can't guarantee people will be here joining us. However, that's how it usually works. When the gospel is being spoken, even though many people will not listen to it, some will. Right? So the idea is that the more we're speaking it to each other, the more our faith is going to grow. We're just going to be confident then. And then that confidence won't be able to help but convince the lack of confidence around us and the terror everybody else is living in that we got something different. That different thing is this St. Paul mindset. Identity check time. Why are you here? Why do you come to 4881 Kilburn? What do you get here that you don't get anywhere else? You're pretty far away from the rest of the world right now. We really are out on a, on a peninsula. What brought you here? What brought me here from as far away as sunny Southern California, <laughs> uh, what brought me here and keeps me staying here is not the land, although I don't mind Northern Illinois too much, certainly not the government. Uh, what has brought me here is the fact that you as a people have said to me that the word and sacraments of Jesus Christ are sufficient for us to survive on until he gets back. And I'm like, yes, let's do it. And so I'm here for that reason. That's the St. Paul mindset then. That everything that we have, everything that we do, even though we don't deny its value, go have a life, enjoy your life, but see it as belonging to God. It's his life to give you for you to give others. That's the St. Paul mindset. That's how St. Paul was able to turn every conversation into one about true good things, even if he didn't get to Jesus' resurrection by the end. But he wanted to. Why? Because he knew that the truest, goodest thing is that Jesus is risen, that you are paid for, and that means you can't die now, and that he won't be long in his return. And so until then, the water and the food that seal and feed us in this reality become what Christianity is, a path of certainty through a dark and weary land of death. The only thing to add to that is to tell someone to join us if they actually think it's a good idea. That's again what we're going to be practicing over and over. There's another thing I'm going to be giving you this year, though. And I think I'm answering a question I've been asked a couple times by different people. The question is, Pastor Fisk, what do you want us to do here? And I, every time I've had that question asked to me, I'm like, well, we're in sacrament ministry. We're the church of Jesus, right? We, we sing hymns and we receive the supper. But the people who have said this, and there's been at least two, three, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean, what do you want us to do after that? And I'm like, well, I'm your pastor. I'm here to have you do that. And, and you are to figure out your life after that. No, 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 no. I mean, as a congregation, what are we going to do together right here on this corner? You mean besides church? Do you want to do more? And they say, yes. Okay. Well, I've been thinking about it now for two years, believe it or not. And part of it was I had to have two plans because one had to be down there in case we ended up down there. But I've been thinking a lot about it. And I want to take the next year to try to suggest to you that there is something we can do right here on this corner that will make, there's two things, that will make people come to this corner. And then well, we'll have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus when they do. But the trick of this is so huge though, because what we're going to do if we do something outside of word and sacrament that would draw people here can never become the reason people really come here. 
If people come here for whatever else we put out there and not for word and sacrament, or if we were to change word and sacrament to make them more likely to come inside and join us here, well, then we've just become them. We spend a lot of time and money missionalizing ourselves into them, which is not what we want to do. We don't want to become hopeless. We want to give our hope to those who have no hope. And I'll throw out two words for you now. I won't even explain how. Farmer's market, skateboard park. Give me a year to convince you. It's not just that. That's just the hub. Actually, the hub's the parking lot we all know we need. And then what do you do with a parking lot when you can't put anything else on it? Besides have a farmer's market. Think about it. We'll come back to it. What we really want to do more than any of that is get your conscience free. We want to get that anxiety that is not just stress. You can't avoid stress. You're going to have stress. But the anxiety, which is your fear of death, that is driving you because everyone else is afraid of death, and they don't speak English anymore. They speak TV slogans. And they're walking around going, fear of death, fear of death, fear of death, fear of death. Vote this fear of death. No, vote this fear of death. And everything's fear. So if you want something different than that, you have to listen to a different story. And it cannot at this time be the story of these here United States, which I see flag, I see flag, I see flag. I wear flag. I love flag. I will die for flag. But I will not die for flag because of flag. I will die for flag because I'm a king and a priest in the citizen of Jesus Christ's kingdom. And he says, obey your authorities. And my authority in this land is the Constitution of the United States. So I'm going to do my best to make sure my neighbors are protected with what it says. But that is not going to be who I ultimately am. I am a king and a priest of another world. And so are you. We all are. When Jesus tells Matthew to follow him, he doesn't mean, oh, try something different. Here's a new pair of socks. It's kind of like the rest, but a little better. He means something much more. It's what the Ephesians text will show us this morning. He means he's going to make you a real human now. You've never been one. Not, not by yourself. You are not a mature human. You instead are an infant in your thinking. That's the definition of sin, the way Paul's going to talk about it in Ephesians 4. He wants you to become mature now. And then from that, we're also going to see how the words given to Ezekiel show us that that maturity has a certain level of stubbornness involved. Now, being stubborn about your own ideas is a really awful thing. Stubborn people are awful. I, I, it's awful when I'm stubborn to my wife. It's awful when my children are stubborn to me, like me being stubborn to my wife. Frustrates me to the dickens and back. But there's a place where stubbornness is a gift from God. I don't know. What's your favorite story? I'm not going to say names. I'm just going to tell you what happens. There's a moment when darkness is about to overwhelm an entire city. And the great enemies chief champion has come to that city gates upon a winged beast and lands and the shadow and the chaos is all about to ransack this last bastion of truth in the entire world. And one man on a horse rides out to face this beast, knowing full well he shall never beat this beast. He can't. It's prophesied that he can't, and he knows it, but he goes anyway. That's Christianity. We know we can't win. We're not supposed to win. We're supposed to die trying. And we get back up and we try again. Because when we die trying, we win. We don't lose. We rise, right? We have secrets nobody knows about. And we tell them all the time. Well, you've, been, you've been in church your whole life. 
You know eternal life is yours. Yet for some reason, right, we don't pick it up and use it. And that's the maturity issue. And that's what uh, hopefully Matthew, Ezekiel, and, and uh, again, uh, uh, Ephesians will bring us to today, to be stubborn where it's right to be stubborn. To see the evil about to attack and say, I'm not letting that get any further, even if it means I don't get any further. That's what Jesus did for you. Not so you should feel guilty, but so you should feel free. No, you can't die. You can heedlessly throw this life away in pursuit of the good, knowing that you won't lose a thing, you'll get more. Now, I want to give you the history of tax booths, which has got to sound so boring. And it is, it sounds terrible. The reason I want to do this is that the tax booth that Matthew's sitting at, it's not a tax booth. I mean, I don't even know what, do you remember like Lucy in, in Peanuts with her little like booth, like the doctor is in, the doctor's like, you may remember that? Somebody tell me I'm not nuts. Peanuts existed, right? Okay. So like, like, that's how I think of this tax booth, right? Like the tax collector is in, right? And here he is sitting and Jesus comes along, follow me. Ah. It's not even like, you know, visiting what? Uh, who does your taxes for you these days? Uh, you know, TurboTax, they're, they're online. It's not even like visiting an accountant. That's kind of maybe how you think about it though, right? Or maybe like going down to the DMV, maybe a little more like that. Um, it's none of that. So I'm gonna give you some of the history of these guys. They're, they're really interesting. They're kind of like the Templars. Only the Templars were a Christian thing that happened in the Middle Ages. The, the tax collectors or the, the toll takers the telonase is what their word is, or publican might have been the old way of translating that. The most common word we have to that word today in English is the word police. Think about it. The publican, the public representative who comes in the name of the king. The invention of the police was an ancient but kind of medieval style of paying somebody who's strong enough to go get the taxes to go get the taxes. That's how it worked in Athens, now 500, 600 years before Jesus. And they just would hire the strongest groups of people, private militaries, to go get the taxes. You can imagine most serfs living on their farms weren't fans of these guys. Here comes the Telenois, he's a military guy, he's a cop, like you see him today, only he's not there to give you a ticket. Although there are cops who make money that way, by the way. <laughs> uh, but he's there, he's there to take your money. Now, when this, through Alexander the Great, makes its way down to Africa and Egypt and the Middle East a couple hundred years later, and is left in the hands of Cleopatra's kingdom, it's called the Ptolemaic Empire, which is hard to remember because it starts with a P and it sounds like it starts with a T. But Cleopatra, you know her name. Her kingdom that comes out of the Greek world continues this what do you call it, publican uh, enforcement of tax code, but it's supposed to just having people pay for the job initially and kind of get it because they're mercenary militaries. Instead, now they're official. So think Sheriff of Nottingham. Now he's officially working for the king too. He's not just getting paid by the king. They have the authority. Now this kind of disperses and goes back more towards an Athenian style under Rome, except for one thing. Jesus, when he's living in the first century, is under Rome, but he's in Galilee a lot of the time. Remember how Pontius Pilate is the governor of a certain area, and King Herod is the king of some other area, and that's all really confusing? It's because Rome is running the, we have officially taken the empire into becoming the tax system. That is, now your Roman military is collecting the taxes. Pontius Pilate is the guy who's doing that in Jerusalem. And it's all based on a high, high level of some outside power forcing you to pay. But Galilee's not like that. Galilee's a holdover from that Ptolemaic system, where basically King Herod is ruling, 
because he's the guy who could pay Caesar to have the right to collect taxes in this area. So he bought the area years and years ago and proved himself so good at getting taxes from it, he's been able to hold on for 30 years. That's Herod the Great. Huh? So Herod the Great is paying guys like Matthew, because he's dead by the time Matthew's there now, it's, uh, 30 years later, the same system. The Ptolemies are being paid by Herod the Great. They're the men working for Esau's son, the Idumean, Herod the Great, to rule over northern Israel, which is not theirs, it belongs to the Jews. And here you have this Jew Matthew then, who goes and works for them. He's a turncoat of the highest order. It gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. There's so much in this. Oh, I want to give you more. Uh, we're going to skip it. Why is it worse? Okay, so Ptolemies, tax collector. It's the root of the word is perfection. Telos. The end, the completion. Yeah, I'll give you all the definitions. It's got five. I only wrote four down. Can't give you the last one. Uh, I can. It's from memory. The last one rarely shows up means a group of people. But the primary meanings of telos, achievement, right, to get something done. Completion, not just to get it done, but it's like it can't be made better than it is now. That's telos. It's completed. Um, and then you have, this is where it matters for Matthew, these next two. The obligation you owe to the state, that's your telos. What do you owe your king? What do you owe your country? The offering you give to the gods, that's also a telos. Now let's just do a little math here. You're telling me this word telos at the root of telones, the, the completion collector, the, the obligation collector, the offering collector. I want you to come to his offering collection place with the name of Julius Caesar or some other Caesar, some symbol of the Caesars up on top of it, and the Caesars are God. And you're supposed to go there and pay God money. And Matthew works there at the front desk. That's why they hate him. He isn't just a betrayer of their people. He's a betrayer of their faith on every single level. This guy has no business with anybody who knows who Jesus is. And yet Jesus goes to him. Before we get there, let's hit a couple of these broken ideas again. So throughout the year, I want to give you not this book per se. There's a lot of hoity-toity in the book. I want to give you the skeleton of the book. It's going to tell you how to discern the devil's lies. We're going to build up one idea at a time every week or so. So last week, broken idea number one is that the devil has one lie. Rely on yourself. No matter how he spins it, it's always that. You can boil every false teaching down to that. Add to that now, with rely to yourself being false, rely on yourself being false, broken line number two, or idea number two, is that you're perfect. You're perfect is the enemy of God's good. Now that sounds counterintuitive because when God gives you a book that says woe on it, you think that'll taste bad. <laughs> and then you eat it and it tastes good. So bear with me here. You're perfect is the enemy of God's good. Every time you get upset in life, it's because your perfect has not been met. You have imagined you're perfect, you're planning you're perfect, you don't like the way your life is, you're going to make it better. Okay, that's fine. And so what do you imagine? The perfect and you go toward it. And then God says, no. Here's a rock in your way. Here's a left turn you didn't want. God says that's good and you don't like it because it's not perfect. You think it'd be perfect if it was like this. God, make it like this. Then it'd be perfect. He's like, you're where you are right now because I put you there. That's good. So it's not that you can't pray for different things or that God will never grow you or send you on a journey. But if you're on a journey looking to be somewhere else, then you're missing the journey that you're on. 
Your perfect, your pursuit of perfection gets in the way of your faith. Far better to know perfection has been achieved for you and just pursue God's good instead. Stop worrying about how you did it and worry about whether you did it. It's a much more important thing. Did you have the right motivation this morning when you came to church? Did you feel like it when you got up? I didn't. But you know what? I'm here. You know why? Because God made me come. I, I wouldn't have gotten here on my own. He brought me here. You think having done all that to get me here, he's just going to send me away and not change me? No, he's going to change me. He's going to change you. So have confidence that your feet came here this morning because Jesus made that happen. The same way he's going to make Matthew do something truly unexpected in our text. Uh, I skip a card. Uh, looks like it. No, it's not. This is the one. <laughs> I do. This is a complete aside, but I'm going to say it just because it's online. Modest Yahoo. Modest Yahoo is a Orthodox Jew reggae rapper. It's not so bad, really. I kind of like some of his stuff. I always thought his name was funny, though. Modest Yahoo. It's Matthew in Hebrew. I learned this week. Modest Yahoo. Yeah, thank you, Hugh. He knew it was supposed to be a joke. Nobody else did. <laughs> Why does Christ call this Modest Yahoo? What is he thinking? Ah, that's what I skipped. Where are you, card? Don't lose that. This is the most important idea today. Okay? So if you get nothing else, get this. There's two definitions of a sinner working in the text from Matthew. Two definitions. One, the Pharisee's definition. One, the Bible's definition. The Pharisee's definition of a sinner is... Anybody who's not a Pharisee, doesn't matter what a Pharisee is, they change that sometimes. They've had these Pharisees, they've had it the same for a while, but it takes many forms. And it really doesn't matter what they say you're supposed to be like. The point is you're not like them. A Pharisee thinks a sinner is someone who's not like him or her. And you act this way, right? Like the reason you don't like somebody, did I say this already today? I said it at the other services. The reason you don't like somebody is because they're not like you. You're a Pharisee at heart. You want them to be like you, and then you'd like them more. Isn't that weird? It's like completely sinful. Huh? The Pharisaic definition of sinner is they're not like me. And then the Matthean biblical definition of a sinner is not that they are like me. No, no, no. It's that they need to be forgiven. It's a completely different category. Pharisee, sinner is not like me. Christianity, sinner needs forgiveness. A sinner is a person who needs forgiveness, not to repent, not to have their life be made better, not to be perfect. All those things come from forgiveness. What they need is forgiveness, atonement, payment, something to exchange God's wrath for something better. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that is why then when we get into the text, finally, if I can find the right cards, he goes to Matthew and to the Pharisees and you see them respond differently. So the Pharisees get into this because they're complaining, but he gives them a chance and they reject it. So again, he goes, he calls Matthew from this tax temple place. He says these words, follow me. That alone is bizarre. What, when was the last time you were anywhere and somebody you even know kind of remotely, but not like on a personal level, right? Like, I don't know, someone random comes up to you, follow me. What are you going to do? Yeah, you're not going to follow him, right? Now, again, does Matthew maybe, has he heard about Jesus' miracles? Does he know who he is? Possibly. Does that make a difference? He left his job, for pity's sakes. Well, and he clearly left behind, what? A different religion at that moment. So Jesus says, follow him. Matthew has no ability to do this, but he does. This is how your feet got to church this morning. Remember that. And then see this in the word, he rose and followed him. Because the Greek is so much better. 
Circle rows there. Resurrected is the word. Anastasis. If you need help remembering the Greek, my daughter's name Anastasia. She's named Anastasia because I love the word resurrection. It's such a good word. So we named our kid Resurrection. Anastasis. That's what it says right here. He says, again, follow me and Matthew, he, Anastasis. He resurrected and followed him. Now, do, am I suggesting to you at that moment, Matthew became an immortal physical being never to die a martyr's death? No, he died a martyr's death later. My point is that Jesus raised him with the resurrection that matters most first, which is your heart, mind, and mouth. And he changed his life. His body started walking different directions after he suddenly was a different per person. Yeah. So the idea here is that when Jesus says, follow me, it's not law or gospel. It is simply the word of God coming to you. And he's going to make you come believe his law and his gospel. It's not a work you do to get better. It's a reality you experience because you are already saved. You're going to follow Jesus' words. That's his promise. It's a good place to start. As a result of that, people started showing up. More of these tax collectors and sinners, they come. Where is it? In the house. There's debate about that historically. Is he at Matthew's house like he does with Zacchaeus and other places? Is he at his own house? Is he in the tax collection building? Either way, the Pharisees are not content. They are discontent that people are believing in Jesus. That's not enough. There are more important things at work, so they complain. And how do they complain? Do they complain by going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we think you're a false teacher? No. They don't attack the shepherd. Why would they do that when they can pick off the outlier in the flock? Much easier to do that. So they go to one of the disciples who's young and naive and says, have you seen what your teacher's doing? And they try to shame the name of Jesus in the eyes of the disciples. Now, when I first read the text, you know, verse 12, when he heard it, Jesus heard it and responds, I assumed he like overheard them speaking and jumps into the conversation. And that may be the case. It may be also they asked him later. Um, it's hard to say, but it's clear that he doesn't really care much for their point of view. And at the same time, he wants to give them a way to get to his point of view. So when he says, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, just the sick people. So go and learn something. There's also some really key stuff going on behind the English and go and learn. Hopefully, you know, from memory at this point, at least some of Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20, go into all nations, make disciples, baptize, teach, all that stuff, right? Well, the opening phrase, uh, going, make disciples, first two words in that, in that set of verses, that's the same words here in verse 13. Going, be discipled. The only difference is it's passive. Not make disciples, Pharisees, going, be discipled. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think Matthew accidentally, right before he's going to have the apostles be appointed apostles and sent to the Jews in chapter 10, and then before he's going to send them to the world in chapter 28, gives the Pharisees a chance to be apostles. Here it is. It's for you too. Go and learn what this means. Do you not believe? Do you not understand? Would you like to? Go and learn what this means. Mercy. Grace. That's it. You can't do anything. He's done it all. He's done. It's complete. He has risen. You're paid for. That's it. Go learn what this means. I came not to call those who are ready to come. I came to call those who are sinners. Jesus' impossible authority does what we can't do, even within us and for us. I want to jump from this now into talking point number three from Talk Them Into It. Last week, we looked at one and two, that Christianity always says Jesus is risen. 
And we have to say it. If we don't speak at all, we are unfaithful in that. And if we speak something other than he is risen, like beyond that, like deny that, well, we're unfaithful there too. It has to be starting at that point. And that this is how non-Christians become Christians, is that we speak about Jesus' resurrection to them. Somehow, some way, over time. Now, point number three to add to this, though, is that you just know they're not listening. They're not going to believe it. Assume they are going to say, I don't think that makes sense. Assume, as Ezekiel will show us in a little bit, they're going to make a funny face. Their head is going to be like flint and their heart hard. What are you talking about? And we've been taught here in America that that means we're offensive. And so we should be quiet and not say it anymore. And my hope this year is to convince you that you should be offensive as a Christian. I don't think you should be offensive by being a jerk. I think you should expect Christianity to offend people who don't want to believe it. And I think that when someone tells you that's offensive, you should stop. You should slow down a little bit here and think about that. Imagine a world in which you're playing sports, any sport. I don't care which one you play. And there's a couple kids on one side, there's a couple kids on the other side, and one side says, stop, you're offending us. And then you stop, and then they go and score because they're not afraid to play offense. They lied to you saying you're not allowed to play offense. You only can play defense. And Christianity, we bought this hook, line, and sinker for 100 years. We have not offended people, which means we've not played offense with our religion. So then, how do you start? You start by knowing they're not listening. And so you don't need to be worried. If they're offended, it's because they're not listening. They're just making that up to be angry at you so they don't have to listen. The world does not want to hear the good news that Jesus isn't dead. Know that. Stand on that. And you won't be so hurt when people don't like what you say. Is it going to magically make you a bastion of truth? No, 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 no. All of these things are cumulative gains, little inches that you grow by getting conviction, getting confident. But if you know they're not going to, if you know that nine out of 10 people are going to say, nah, I don't want to believe that, you'll at least stop trying to change it to make them believe it. Because that's what Ezekiel was, well, threatened with. And maybe we should jump there now. If you don't mind turning to Ezekiel chapter two and then into three, we're not going to go through the entirety of, of the text. It's a long reading. But I want to focus in on Ezekiel's need to retain the same message, regardless if anyone hears, and he's even told before he goes, nobody's going to hear you. And we don't have that. We've not been told that. I think people are going to listen to us in Rockford. I think we've been prepped for this. I think God's hands at work. But I don't know, maybe he'll do it the same way Ezekiel did. He tells Ezekiel, they're not going to listen by and large. And he says that by, again, verse 9, verse 10 in chapter 3. When it talks about, I'm going to make like emery harder than flint your forehead. I'm not sure emery brings that across. And I really struggled with this as I looked at it again this week to try to say, well, what does that mean? Again, it doesn't matter what your image is. The idea is that you have an object which will break and an object which will not break. And you, Christians, are the one that will not break. And the object that will break is the unbeliever's false faith. That's what this idea is, that you might know that before you start. And so that's the confidence just to stand there and not worry about it so much. Even when, again, at the end of it there, verse 11, they hear or refuse to hear. God expected the people whom Ezekiel preached to to not listen. But he also knew that that preaching would set up the day when they would return to the land and be faithful and listen again. 
So sometimes the goal of the church is not to collect the crop as it grows. Sometimes we've got to go out and dig in the soil. And we've got to go out and plant some seed. And again, that's what our plan is as a group here, right? To recognize that no one's just going to show up here. We have to talk to them at some point. And again, we do that not by changing what we say because the world doesn't want to hear it. We keep saying what we say. And what we'll find, and I think this is why I say I think we're prepped for this, the world has been trying to get us to shut up for quite a long time. And they've been going off on a tangent as a result. And things are getting worse and worse in, in life. It's not just what people see in the news. It's like their internal life at home. They're just, they're depressed and sad and frustrated, hate, hate this world, even though they have all the stuff they could possibly want. Well, I think that's because they need to be saved from this world and they don't know it. And I think there's more today who are ready to hear that message from somebody they trust than maybe there were 10 years ago when everything seemed to always be going up forever and ever. But that means, again, that someone that they trust has to be willing to speak to them a different story, a different message. So Ezekiel, again, is sent to not change the story, even though the outside world is changing it. The other piece to really take away from the Ezekiel text is uh, the bit about the scroll itself. And it's kind of weird, right? Like, hey, man, here's a book, eat it. Like, that's, that's odd, that's different. I mean, I guess I can imagine a cake from like, what, Baskin Robbins, it's an ice cream cake that looks like a book. Like, I could see that, but this isn't that. And to make it even weirder, books didn't exist, right? So all they have are truly scrolls, you know, 30 foot long piece of paper rolled up inside of usually a metal box of some kind to kind of keep it tight and it would pull. Make it worse than that, it's not just eat the book, it's the book is called, you know, Wailing with Screaming Whales, and, oh, I forget the first one when I looked into that one as, um, yeah, I'm not going to look it up for you now. Uh, the wailing one is like at a funeral, wailing women out loud. We don't have that now. If you've ever seen a movie with the Middle East, when they have a funeral, they walk around, they scream for like days. Like, that's the word. And then uh, the word that is woe, that's a word that is so untranslatable for bad stuff that has come into every language that's ever hit, originally with the, the Hebrew. Uai uh, is really what it means. Comes into the Greek oi. You can hear it in the like Yiddish today. Oi, 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 vey. Right, that kind of talk. Same word. Whoa. It just means bad stuff that you can't even imagine. It's so bad that it's just is whoa. <laughs> like you don't want to go there. That's how bad it is. So here's this book that's got all that, and he says, "You eat that." Every time God speaks to natural man, it seems wrong to us. That's the point. God speaks and we're like, what? And then faith listens and does what God said. He eats it. What's he find? Does he find woe? He finds it sweeter than honey. Does that mean none of the woe came upon Israel in captivity? No, no, it all came upon Israel in captivity. Well, then what was sweeter than honey? His faith sustained him through the entire thing. And so did every Christian who was waiting in faith then. They could see all the woe as being but one more thing to push them back to trust in Christ. I'm, I'm going off text here for a minute to share a thought with you. I found a verse two weeks ago from the Apocrypha. I don't spend a lot of time in the Apocrypha. That's that section between the Old and New Testament that the Roman Catholic Bible will have in it and the Lutheran Bible used to have in it before we became just Protestants um, in America, basically. But the point is, there's a lot of history there that we do not confess to be without error, but we do confess it to be of value for Christian reading. And saying that, I've still never really read it, a um, little bit here and there. 
But I was pointing to a verse in a section called the Wisdom of Solomon, which we know is not by Solomon, but it's a book of wisdom literature. And it was a commentary on the text from last week about the snake on the pole in the wilderness. Remember that? And Moses looks up the snake on the pole. And here's what it says about the people who were bit by the snakes to have the pain so that they would see Jesus and be saved in the cross. Here's how they said it before Jesus came. These, these are intertestamental Jews. It says, your sons were not overcome by the venomous teeth of the dragons because your mercy was with them. They were pricked, here that is the pain, they were pricked so that they would remember your words and not falling into deep forgetfulness, be ever mindful of your good. I wish the Bible said that because that's about what the Bible says. The suffering comes to remind us that we cause suffering as we are. That we eat the bread of violence and cannot sleep until we have made sure I'm safe tomorrow. That is, forget daily bread. I'm going to be God a little bit today. That's who we are. And when we put all of us together in a big planet, we kill each other. That's what we do. But that brazen-faced, hard-hearted death does not have to be who we are because as Christians, we can see an enlightenment that's a completely different way. Completely different way. And that brings us then to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you turn there for our final text for the morning, I'm not going to try to explain the ascension and the descension and all that stuff from that earlier section. It's, it's interesting. He's defending the belief that Christ ascended to heaven. That's what he's doing. But let's just start with what he wanted to get us for the rest of it. That when Christ ascended, he did so to give us something. He gave gifts to men. That's verse 11. And what are these gifts? We want to think things like, right, superpowers, like strength and wisdom and the ability to always sit still, right, Hugh? You're so awesome. Self-control. Um, that's great. He wanted... He, he, hmm. Sorry, I don't want to embarrass you, Chris. That was awesome, and I'm trying to make you feel like he's safe. Because we're glad no matter what you do, yes. Thumbs up. Yeah. He gave not us, us. He gave us dead guys. Apostles and prophets, they're dead now. But they're not because they've written what he gave them to say. So you have to hear this as the scriptures, first and foremost. That when Jesus ascended into heaven, he left the scriptures, prophets and apostles, the evangelists. Historically, that's been understood to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Luke was not an apostle, nor was Mark. And yet they're in the scriptures. Now, I don't know if that argument really gets me, but it's good enough for today. The point then becomes, who are these pastors and teachers? And it's important to see that this is not the day school teacher in Lutheran tradition not in any way, shape, or form. It's just another word for pastor. So if you want to know what a pastor is, what should a pastor do? What should he be? He's a teacher. That's what he is. He's a teacher who teaches you what the scriptures say. And if he's not doing that, he's not doing his job. Those things were left then, the scriptures and men to preach the scriptures to do what? Verse 12, to equip you. I mean, you could do it by yourself, I guess, alone with a Bible. Like I go and learn the Bible by myself, but I do it by reading others. And I certainly benefit whenever someone who's wiser than me about the Bible talks about the Bible to me. And so again, God says, that's how you live as a Christian. You can study on your own, but I'm going to make sure every week 
somebody whose life it is to be more mature than you in Christianity. Because like you're paying him to do this. That he will be there to tell you, okay, I've been there before. Here's how we deal with that. That's what your pastor's for. Okay? So that together we build up the body of Christ. This is the rest of verse 12. Not divide it, not tear it down. That we would grow. Not in numbers per se, but where are we going to grow? Verse 13. Until we all attain, I mean, highlight it with every breath you got, the unity the unity of the faith. Unification is possible. Agreement is possible. Peace and harmony are possible. Where? In Jesus, in his words, when we don't argue with him. When the king speaks, we say, amen, Lord, so be it. We have a unity of the faith that is the knowledge of the Son of God himself. The medieval theologians who were always pondering Jesus' ascension or Jesus' Trinitarian existence, I mean, it might seem obtuse to us now, and yet they were listening to this verse. That to know Jesus is to live forever now. And that, that changes how you walk now so that your feet aren't your own. You're in a great and glorious war of light attacking the darkness, and the darkness cannot win. And it will explode in a final ending at which you are built of light rather than dust. That's the mature manhood, the measure and statue of the fullness of Christ, then, that finishes verse 13. But I'm going to say that's even better than what it sounds like. Because in English, it sounds like the mature manhood is your manhood. But I'm going to tell you, the Greek here is a singular reality. You are being built up into the complete, tell us, mature man. Who? Jesus. You and me and the rest of us pulled from the world into his own body so that on the day of resurrection, he's going to pop us all back out again. Like blood and water from the side, right? Or like Eve from the side of Adam. That mature man, Christ, is what the preaching of the scriptures, week in, week out, day in, day out, is to pull you into, draw you to this man who's been lifted up. And the result of this, this is why, I mean, if you want the sales pitch, I'll tell you, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Have you felt like the last few months you've been led by the nose just a touch? If you would rather not be a child in your thinking any longer and are done letting wicked men who have no interest in your welfare, whether it be faithful or otherwise, run everything in the world and just tell you how to think, well, then you need to build yourself up in the scriptures and you will find a mind that isn't deceived by these liars. You'll even learn how to smell it. You know it before it's coming. The number of times that because I have read the scriptures, I have known what an attacker was going to do before it was done. It seems like prophecy. It's not. They just do the same thing every time. And the more you're able to do that, you can become like the, the master ninja who's not attacking them when they attack you, which is what you do now with the slogans from TV, right? Instead of attacking them when they attack you, you want to learn how to use their force against them. Dodge, 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 killing blow. He is risen. You wait until they're not ready for your answer, and they ask you for your answer. That's what this book will teach you how to do. And then you hit them with the one they can't argue against. He is risen. If you would not be tossed to and fro by the waves, you must commit your mind to the scriptures. And you must let your teacher Jesus teach me, and let me, the teacher he sent you, teach you. Again, this whole year is geared to that, and I've told you why. 
I want you to talk about Jesus for your own faith, to be strong. And I really would like to see lots of people believe in Jesus and come to this corner to celebrate and learn that. I'd also like us to send people all over the world, including, well, downtown. I got stories to tell about that from this week, but we'll leave it for another time, maybe. Who are we to be? Let's finish Ephesians 4 here. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How are we growing up into Christ? We speak the truth. That's how, like Ezekiel, we don't change the message. Do we speak it with venom? No, we speak it with love. Which means even when I tell someone, you know, I think you're really wrong and you're probably going to go to hell for what you say. I'm never going to say that like glad I'm saying that. <laughs> like, like that's, that's just, but it's true. It's got to be true at a certain level for someone who doesn't believe, right? So we speak the truth in love. And in that way, through that speaking of truth, grow up into this head who is Christ from whom him, our body, us together are joined and held together. He says, when we work properly, that is when we're functioning as forgiving, merciful people with each other, not trying to build our own temple, make a name for ourselves, but just simply believing we're all going to live together forever anyway, so we better get used to each other and rise from the dead together. When you have that happening, it will, the body will grow so it builds itself up in love. The body will grow so it builds itself up in love. What does that mean? It means God's not going to send anybody to join this congregation until there's somebody here willing to meet them get to know them personally and teach them about Christianity besides me. Because he wants people who come here not to just join the club, but to grow. And so he's not going to send us more people we can hand than we can handle. He's going to wait till you're ready. Huh? We'll be ready. There's no rush. There's no race. There's no hurry. He directs our feet. He has led us here. He doesn't want to have Christianity disappear from Rockford. We're not the only ones here. We're going to catalyze. We're going to catalyze everybody that we can. Friend and foe alike. If they're on Jesus' side, they're on our side. Let's teach them how to talk about it, yeah? He is risen. You are paid for. You cannot die now. He won't be long anyway. The water is sealed. It. The food is about to feed it. This is Christianity. It's not in the book, but it should have been. Last point. Join us. Join us. In the name of Jesus. Amen.